0: With great fear and trepidation, that I preach this text this morning—the story of Ananias and Sapphira—but um, we read the beginning part of that, Acts four thirty-two to thirty-seven, because it's so important to understand that part before you understand the story of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. And then we're just going to taste a little bit of what happens afterward in the rest of chapter five um, at the end of today's sermon. So, uh, as we come into today's sermon, I was thinking about earlier this week, you know, it's officially summer now. I think the summer solstice officially starts this weekend, and so it's officially summertime. My daughters and I this week went on a little family walk in the afternoon, and we were, they wanted to find signs of summer. So they wanted to make a list of everything that they saw that gave them a sign that summer is here. And then we were going to go back and draw pictures of them. Uh, which I think we still need to do, actually. We have the list. We haven't drawn the pictures yet. So uh, we went on a walk, and these were the evidences of unmistakable signs of summer that Nora, Clara, and I found on our walk through Salem. I think it was on Tuesday of this week. We found grass, the sun, ants, bees, a white butterfly, bugs, white flowers, birds, shadows, green leaves, yellow flowers, a water fountain, and a spider web. All of which we decided were signs that summer is here. And so uh, we also saw some other things like a stop sign, uh, a scary tree from Halloween, and red leaves. But we had to kind of talk through how those aren't really signs of summer. Those are signs of other, either other seasons or things. But but the idea is that there are unmistakable things that have shown us that we've made a transition or a change from spring to summer. And we'll probably do something similar in, I don't know, September or October, and then probably another similar thing in November, December, trying to find signs of change, signs of things that are happening. And so it got me thinking about this text as we were reading it this morning, um, of what, what what are some of the signs of change of the church? What are some of the things that are clear evidences of going from one thing to the next. And so you see it pretty clearly in these two passages we read this morning that flow together. The reason we know they flow together is because chapter 5, verse 1 starts with the word but. And anytime you see a sentence or a paragraph start with the word but, that means that you should know what came right before that, because what's about to happen is the opposite of what happened just prior. And so these texts flow together um, in a real interesting way. And so what we're going to be focusing on this morning is just one word, which Donna just nailed it in her reading. And I love how the Holy Spirit does this. The word that just that connects these two passages together, and that is an unmistakable identifier of the church, is the word grace. Chapter 4, verse 33, in my translation, the ESV, it says, And great Grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. And so as we learn in this series about what the church is and how God is on the move through his church, it has to have this element of grace, this transformation that happens to individuals because great grace comes upon them, it comes upon individuals and comes upon an entire body or a church like you and I. And so this morning we get the we get the wonderful task to just investigate what grace is and what evidence we see of it in this passage, both the explicit and the implicit, and then to see how it changes us today. So Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And we're gonna just forewarning, we're gonna sing the song Amazing Grace to end the service today, because Grace is amazing. But he asked the question, and he takes a whole book to, to un, unfold it. What is so amazing about grace? And Yancey calls grace the last best word. It's the last best word that we have. It's a word that just is, is overflowing with meaning and power that you really can't probably adequately define. And so it's not our, it's not our goal this morning to define the word grace. It's our, it's our goal this morning to experience it and to feel it. And to see it, and to pray for it, and to let it flow through us. Gordon MacDonald, another pastor from New England in previous decades, uh, he started a church called Grace Chapel. So uh, he, he, he believed in the concept so much he named the church after it. Uh, he says this, he says, The world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick. But there's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. The world cannot offer grace. Only God himself can. And he can do it through the church. And then Yancey goes on to say, This is the church's single most important contribution. Where else in the world can you go to find grace? And so when we see that great grace came upon the early church in Acts 4, uh, that that, that exemplifies the purpose of the church in one word. Um, And again, there's a wonderful church in Marblehead, which Pastor Bob was at for many years, and the name of that church is Grace Church. There's really no better way to describe the church of Jesus Christ than the word grace. And so, again, we're not going to define the word, but I'll give you some, some ways to understand it. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor, something that you cannot go work for. It has to come to you from an outside source. It's something that's given to you even when you don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's free. It's not something you went looking for. It has to be just bestowed upon you. Grace. And our God is a God of love and mercy and compassion and justice and grace. Right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, he had a choice. When Adam and Eve turned away, his choice was I can either end this experiment, end this project now, or I can... Show fully my heart of grace. And that's what God did. Because that's his character. He's a God with a character of grace. And so he pursued Adam and Eve and gave them clothing and gave them a commission. And thus the story of redemption continues. And so as we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira in a few moments, um, have Adam and Eve in the back of your mind. Because in some sense, this is an Adam and Eve 2.0 in some ways. So God created humanity, Adam and Eve, and they... They had a great commission to be fruitful and multiply and to bless the earth and to care for it. And they, they rebelled and they fell. They, they sinned against God. And then when God creates his, his new community, the church, which he birthed by his Holy Spirit because of the resurrection of Jesus, he has new representatives who are, again, to go and to make disciples of all nations. Or you could say to be fruitful and to multiply and to care for the world. And early on here, you see another representative, Ananias and Sapphira, who rebel, and they do something that's against what the early church was about. And so we'll see how God responds to that and how it's different and what that means for us, because it is very different. So just another quick thing to understand about grace before we get into our points. There's, there's really two big categories of grace I think we need to understand. One is the category of common grace, which is what all of us are experiencing right now. The fact that you are breathing, that you are in good enough health to be in a public place, the fact that you had a meal probably this morning or last night, all of those are evidences of common grace. The fact that we have an air-conditioned building is a common grace that God has given to all people. It's it's grace that he gives to the world to sustain, grace to, to live and to thrive. But then within that common grace, there's this this other circle, which is, you can call it divine grace, or supernatural grace, or special grace. And that's the grace that he has poured out through Jesus to those who believe, to those who who believe in his name. And for that special grace, that now results in a transformed spiritual life, a life that is now defined by his, his calling. Your life has been changed. And when we get to Acts chapter 9, in a couple of weeks, and we start reading about the Apostle Paul, you see a change in a person overnight, and that's an evidence of special or divine grace. So what we're going to look at today is just this idea that that grace changes people, and we're going to do it in a couple of waves. We're going to look at two evidences of grace in this passage, and then sandwiched between them is the danger of grace. So the two evidences of grace, I'll just spoil the plot right off the, right off the bat. The two evidences of grace, so if, if a person has these characteristics, it's, it's evidence that they are a person that's been filled with grace. The two evidences are generosity and joy. And the sandwich in the middle, the danger, is deception or lying or not being your genuine self, or being the genuine self that rises to the fore that turns out to be manipulative or malicious, or that takes grace and twists it to our own desires. That's the danger of grace. We'll get into each of these one by one. So um, the first one is the first evidence of grace that has come upon you is generosity. Generosity, not just as a, I'm gonna put this in the offering plate, which we love that you give things in the offering plate. Our church is sustained by giving by the generosity of people. Um, But generosity that's talked about here in these first several verses, you know, verses uh, chapter 4, 32 to 37, it's all about generosity as a lifestyle. Generosity not just as as a giving of a portion, but you'll notice here that the generosity that's overflowing in the early church is a comprehensive generosity. It's a, we had all things in common, and everything that belonged to one person was also belonging to the whole group. And uh, it says there wasn't a needy person among them. It says they, dis- they sold things and laid it down at the apostles' feet. Think about the trust there that the apostles were given. Um, they were given things to the apostles so that they could distribute it to those that they saw uh, in need. Which, in next week's sermon, we're going to see how, that's, how that gets complicated. And how they have to now think through a more comprehensive strategy about how to, how to identify needs in their church. And that's where the emergence of deacons shows up. That's next week's sermon. But right now, it's just a very simple model of we see a world in need, and we're a people who are going to supply that need by the generosity of our own heart. Not by something that we've contrived, but by something that we've been given. Great grace was given to us, and out of that abundance of grace flows a life of generosity. And it's just an amazing thing. So this is already the second time, just in four chapters, where we've seen a passage like this emerge. You may remember... Chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, uh, it talked about similar kinds of things. It says they, they had all things in common, and they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And it said, and they distributed things to those who had need as it came upon them. But what, what flows through them is this grace. Great grace came upon them all. This is the central theme uh, for the church is to be people of abundant grace. And it changes us to be something that we normally would not be, and now we have been transformed into it. So what is our natural inclination, maybe, is the question. So if, if these verses stick out and are unique as we read them, and we're like, wow, that, that looks uh, extraordinarily different than my, my normal experience of life, then that means that there's a default that you and I fall back to. And St. Augustine, one of the famous church fathers from the year 300, way back, he wrote these famous Christian writings from early on. He talks about how humans have this natural ability to bend in on ourselves. He says our natural inclinations is is to be bent in on ourselves. That's what what sin does. That's what uh, being a broken human does, is we naturally... Our default mode is to care for our own needs. is to be generous for ourselves. I had five Oreos left in the cookie jar this week, and I was hungry, and guess who ate every single one of those last Oreos? I did. And guess who pointed me out last night? Nora did. She's pointing at me. Who ate all the Oreos? The guy that was bent in on himself and took the needs on my own ate the Oreos. Tim, Tim Keller, a pastor, says, he says, the Bible's purpose... The purpose of the Bible is not to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and the brokenness. Otherwise, you would never be able to overcome. So that's why like the prayer book that I gave to the men this morning. It can be so helpful because it gives words to prayers that we want to pray, but we don't know how to pray. So I, as I bought the book this week and was reading it myself, I just said, thank you for these people that have gone before me that are putting words down that I I don't think I could have gotten out myself. And the Bible is that as well. It it gives us what we know we need um, and breaks us out of this default mode of selfishness, of being bent in on ourselves. And so uh, when grace comes upon us, deep generosity emerges, verses 34 and 35. So again, this is not just commonplace generosity. This is deep generosity. A giving up of one way of life with property and land and houses and giving it over to the apostles so that they can distribute it to those who had a need. And one, one just important thing I want to clarify here. This is not some kind of code that the church agreed to. It's not like, okay, everybody, let's, let's, let's take a vote. Let's raise our hands. Who's in favor of... Everybody's selling their houses and giving all the proceeds to the apostles. Everybody vote I. That, that, that never happened. This wasn't like a, a church vote or a, a, a code that they agreed to. This was voluntary. This was a voluntary work of the Holy Spirit to inspire each of these people to be generous and to, to lump their money together for the needs of the world. And so why do I think that's important? I think that's really important when we come to Ananias and Sapphira in a few moments, is we're gonna see that their sin was not a lack of generosity. They actually were being pretty generous by selling their house and their property and giving it to the apostles. Because they were they were voluntarily entering into that spirit. And so that's this this is a voluntary practice of, of generosity. It wasn't something that was enforced, it wasn't like a money grab by the early church. This was something uh, that was uniquely placed on their heart out of, again, the great grace from verse 33. And so Barnabas is seen as the shining example. They, they shine the spotlight on this guy Barnabas, who we'll learn about more as the story of Acts goes on. He's an encouragement to the church. That's literally what his name means. And he's encouraging because he shows the church what generosity can look like in a really powerful way. So that's the first evidence, generosity. Generosity is always an evidence of a gospel proclaiming Jesus-focused church. Now the danger, the danger of grace. It says, Great grace came upon the people, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Verse 1 of chapter 5. So uh, on the screen, Kevin, I'm going to give you a verbal cue here. On the screen, um, there's a picture of a diamond. A diamond that was found this week in Botswana, and it's the third largest diamond that's ever been unearthed in the history of unearthing diamonds. There it is. This thing, it looks giant on a screen. It's giant in real person, I imagine. 1,098 carats. 73 millimeters long, 52 millimeters wide, 22 millimeters thick. This was unearthed in Botswana, which is a diamond uh, capital. A lot of the largest diamonds are found in that country. In a similar way, when grace comes upon you, it unearths the genuine you. So just as this diamond was unearthed this week in Botswana, when grace comes upon you, your, your true self is brought to the fore. So another way to look at it is, um, think about like a life preserver that's in the ocean or in the water. And if you, if you push it down, like a life preserver that's meant to float, if you push it down, what comes up? The water, right? You push it down, and then gravity kind of brings up water. Or if, there's, if it's a small enough body of water, maybe other things will pop up as well. But that's, that's a natural inclination. Things will pop up. And so grace is that, is that idea. that it's, it's that lifesaver that's pushing down on your life, and it brings up the genuine you. And again, when you come to Jesus and when you come and you experience grace, Jesus changes you. Grace changes you. Um, But it also unearths the the messiness in each of us. And each of us have it. Each of us have brokenness and sin in our life that's going to be brought to the fore. And Ananias and Sapphira, what was brought up for them was this uh, sneaky desire to be something uh, that they really actually weren't. So the sin that they had, first of all, was you could say it was greed in one way. They sold a, piece, a, portion, of, a portion of their property. They were generous to sell it and to give the proceeds to the apostles. But they, it says they kept back a portion for themselves, verse 2, which you could say is a skimming off the top or a putting aside in a dishonest or sneaky way. They, they kind of skimmed off the top and said, we'll be generous with this, but we'll, we're going to save some for ourselves as well. So again, their problem was not that they weren't generous, they were extremely generous. The problem was that they, they seemed to imply by Peter's response that, that they were being abundantly generous and they were trying to show their generosity without actually being that in their genuine self. Their heart did not match the act, you could say. And verse 3 kind of gives us the reason why. Verse 3 says, it's Peter's response. It says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? It says this was Satan's instigation. It was Satan's prompting. It was the evil one coming in and motivating their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit uh, and try to be generous without actually being generous. And so their ultimate sin here was lying. Lying not just to God, but to, to men. And lying not just to men, but to God. He lied to both. And his wife knew about it. Again, don't, don't just hear the echoes of Adam and Eve in this a little bit? Of a husband and a wife kind of collaborating together in rebellion. Sneaky rebellion. The word here for lying is the word pseudo. Pseudo, which means kind of a fake so think about being pseudo-generous or being a pseudo-Christian or a pseudo-anything, kind of a fake, a fake version. I pray for each of you uh, as, as I get to know you. I pray, I pray this for myself too, that I would never be a pseudo-Christian, that I would never be a pseudo-half-hearted, pseudo uh, pretending to be something that I'm not, kind of Christian. One pastor who's... Uh, who's dead now, he says, half-hearted Christians are actually the most miserable people of all. They know enough about God to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. And don't you kind of see that in Ananias and Sapphira here? It's like they, they, they knew what they were supposed to do. They, they, knew, they knew what it could be. They, just, they probably ended up being miserable because they probably felt a compulsion to be generous without actually wanting to be generous. It it never got to their heart. They were lying to the Holy Spirit and to God. They were more interested in showing the world they were being generous or appearing to be generous than they were to actually being generous. And what we see here is that God despises that. God doesn't despise the lack of generosity in and of itself. He doesn't despise our sin in and of itself. He despises the, the mockery that they're making of his name. The this idea of being being some or trying to trying to show something that they're not actually being in their heart. He can see our heart. In our Bible study on Zoom a couple of nights ago, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the person of David. And um, David is a complicated character. He's he's in some sense uh, one of the shining examples of godly character in the Bible. But then he turns around and sins and and does these terrible sins. But But when God chooses David to be the king, this is what he says. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And when God looked at the heart of David, he saw a heart that was moldable, that was changeable. And someone that he he knew he was going to sin, he knew he was going to mess up and in some sense make a mockery of God's name. But he also knew that in David's heart was a heart that would confess his sin that would be humble, re- humbly and repentant, and someone who would ultimately uh, come back around and praise God for his grace and mercy and generosity. So that's, that's the shining glimmer in the Ananias and Sapphira story is that, is that God gives grace to the weary and to the weak. And if your heart is, is moldable and changeable, he will use you. Um, unfortunately, what we don't see in the, the people of Ananias and Sapphira is is that kind of heart that wants to be molded by God. And so God ultimately punishes them and puts them to death. And a great fear came upon the church. And, it, and again, that's why I come into this text with fear and trepidation, because it, it's a warning. It's a, it's a shot across the sky to the church today and across the ages of God is not to be mocked. God is not a trophy God. He's not someone who is to be marched onto a pedestal. God is a God to be worshiped in spirit and in truth and in our heart and the genuine soul of each of us. And that's what he desires. God is a God of justice and holiness. He's not to be messed with or manipulated or changed. Rather, we are to be changed by what he gives to us, which is his great grace that comes upon us. And so that's the danger. What we can bring to God is ourselves and nothing more. Tim Keller says, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. By what kind of spiritual humility, but that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. When we come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all that I've suffered. But God, however, wants us just to look at him and to receive the grace he's offering us. Lastly, where again, that's like 35 verses, so I'm not going to look at any of all, or all of this in any kind of uh, extensive way, but I'll summarize it for you. What happens after this story is the apostles go back out. It says they're freed. It says they continue to do signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're ultimately arrested, and they're brought before the, 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 the council and the Sanhedrin again, in the temple courts, and they're put to the test. And again, they tell them, stop preaching in Jesus' name. And they say, we're not going to listen to you. We listen to God, not to man. And um, they're not really sure what to do with them again. Uh, Ultimately, God lets them out of prison. They're put into prison. And God miraculously opens the doors for them and tells them to go preach the gospel on the streets. So that's where where they're found again. And then uh, just a couple things I want to point out here. Uh, Verses 38 and 39. There, there's like this little inner dialogue between the leaders, the, the, the temple leaders, the captain, and then this, this Pharisee leader comes in, who's kind of like this scholar. Think of like a Harvard professor. He comes into the picture, and he says, I just want to warn you here. Verse 38. He says this. He says, In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or, is, or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. He says, but if it, is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might, not, you might even be found to be opposing God. And so they say, okay, we'll take your advice. We'll let them go. And it says they beat them. They told them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And this is the one point that I really want to make. Verse 41, the second evidence of grace in your life. Then they left the presence of the council Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left rejoicing after taking a beating from the temple guards. They were joy-filled. They were happy. They had this this sense of, of unmistakable, unplaceable joy that was found and the grace that they had received so that even when suffering came, they said, we're counted worthy, and we're going to rejoice because of that. Joy in unjoyous circumstance is a huge marker of someone who's been marked by grace, someone who's been a recipient of what God has given his people. And so ultimately, as one theologian says, it's not the superiority of the church's preaching which finally disarmed the Roman imperial power but the faithfulness of its martyrs or as Ray Ortland says courageous suffering does more good than impressive preaching so our witness begins church as we leave this place not as we're in this place god is glorified when the world sees his people joyous in unjoyous circumstances filled with grace even when hardship ab- <coughs> hardship abounds So I wanna leave you with an image of one final picture. So Kevin, there's a painting that I wanna show on the screen for these people here. It's from Luke 15, it's the story of the prodigal son. Uh, It's a famous painting by Rembrandt in 1661. Maybe you've seen this painting. It's uh, as one art historian says, he says, this is a picture which those who have seen the original in St. Petersburg, Russia may be forgiven for claiming as the greatest picture ever painted. And I think the reason when people look at it and they can claim that it may be the greatest picture ever painted is it taps into the the longing that each of us have deep in our soul for a true father. So the man kneeling is the prodigal son who ran away from his father, made a mess of his life, and when he came back home to his dad, his dad ran and was rejoicing. Arms wide open, receiving his son back with gladness. Get the banquet ready. Put the fattened calf on the grill. Let's have a party for my son has returned. That is the grace that God, that God, our Father, the true Father for each of us, gives to our people, to his people, to each of us. And so on this father's day, as you're sitting in your pew or as you're watching from home, may you run to the Father and know that his grace is sufficient for you, that grace changes you, that the love of the, of, the, of the God that we serve, of the Father that we love, of the one who sent his Son to die for us is sufficient for each of us. A Japanese theologian said this, he pictured when he comes to heaven, Jesus saying this to us, Jesus saying, you've had a difficult journey You must be tired and dirty. Let me wash your feet for the banquet is ready. So as we sing amazing grace to finish today's service, my prayer is that you'll have a quiet moment of just you and the Father, just the two of you, where you can be reminded or see maybe for the first time, even today, the abundant grace of Jesus, which is given for you. Amazing grace that changes you, changes the church, changes the world, and that defines what our purpose is in life. Let me pray for us as we prepare to sing. Our Father in heaven, you are the giver of grace, the only one who can give us what we need and what we don't deserve. May we never come to you presumptuously, Assuming that we can be something before you or earn something before you by some kind of manipulated work to try to earn your favor. Rather, may we come broken with our sin. Just as the prodigal son did. Just as Barnabas did. Just as so many of the early church did. May we come freely out of who we are and say, Lord, this is me. Change me. Mold me. Make me into the fullest version of me that you you desire. May the grace of Jesus fill us, may it come upon us, and turn us into joy-filled, generous people. We ask all this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.